0: All right, y'all. So everyone knows that child care is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full-time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine-tune your skills and grow more in-depth? That's where we come in. These Napcasts, 25-30-minute segments, are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, (laughs) heck, even agree with us, but honestly remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good, let's get it. welcome to napcast a podcast produced by hilltop children's center in seattle washington on the traditional lands of the first people of seattle the duwamish tribe you already know who it is or not you know it is only our second episode but anyways my name is mike brown my pronouns are he him and i'm nick
1: terrones pronouns he him and hey we appreciate y'all coming back for episode two and the feedback that we're already getting and it's it's great to hear words of affirmation and also hear the challenges to our own thoughts as, you know, we're kind of um,
0: presenting, putting ourselves out there with this. So keep the comments are coming. Definitely, definitely. Yo, and like we said in episode one, one of our values, you know, in, in between Nick and I and at Hilltop is learning in relationship with others and um, just being able to challenge one another, sitting in that discomfort. Um Keeping, a, keeping an open heart and a mind is how we grow and how we unite as professions. So I appreciate y'all um, sending us that love, those questions, those thoughts, and allowing us to sp- expand your minds as well as expanding ours. So all right, all right, last episode was about 35 minutes, and uh, we promised that these napcasts are only 2530. So let's see if we can get that a little bit closer this time, but no promises. You know, Nick and I always <laughs> like to talk a lot. Um, so start the timer now, and let's get into today's episode and today we we want to dive into our authentic selves right so what it looks like how do we give ourselves permission to show up to work and be us like like all of us you know what i mean 100% us so as two males of color with Tats and and, and dreads, looking like a whole snack. You know, <laughs> can we say that? that ain't way, right?
1: No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay, go go
0: go go. Keep it but, real. <laughs> but showing up to work with all of our identities and all of our vulnerabilities. So Nick, let's keep it a buck. Let's keep it a. Let's keep it a hundred. Let's keep it real. It's a scary world out there for us. My skin, my skin is black. My dreads are long. I got to build from playing college football. I'm perceived as a threat everywhere I go. You're a Mexican, Native American. You're battling two stereotypes on the daily. Our people are constantly underneath a microscope. Mm -hmm. So with so much of our time spent underneath that, how does or how has that affected your interactions with others and your ability to get things done or simply exist within the childcare space?
1: Yeah. You know, and I think you're saying it perfectly especially these these days with the particular uh, administration and in, in in leadership quote unquote leadership mm. uh, in the government um, i do feel like there is a lot of that uh, microscope being put upon us um and you know it's definitely a mixed bag wherever i go with whoever i meet and, and i've reflected about uh, on that lots of times in my life and, and um, one thing i've learned and that I've learned from people in the Mexican American community is that I'm something called a pocho. And there are varying very definitions about what this is and how it's used to describe individuals. And the one that I embrace the most is that a pocho is an individual who has both Mexican and American heritage. Often pochos lack fluency in Spanish, although some of us are working on that. <laughs> And pochos carry a sense of pride in being able to navigate both cultures with some ease. We easily straddle the fence, so to speak, and can uh, dip our legs or or foot, if you will, into each uh, cultural waters. Um, And like a lot of other people, we too illustrate and exemplify the reality, the actuality and reality of the United States. This country is made up of all kinds of people, brown, black, and every shade in between, who actually make this country great. And for individuals listening to this, the term, especially you early childhood educators, the term code switching may come to mind. Absolutely. And in the linguistic sense, it's the ability to alternate between one or more languages in conversation. Although in the human sense, I like to think of it as the ability to adapt to cultural situations. And children, you know, for example, do this between home and school. So <laughs> to answer your question... I feel like I'm always code switching. And for most of my life, I was never Mexican enough for some and I wasn't white enough for others. And many times I fell into this racially ambiguous category. Hey, is that guy Asian? Is he Pacific Islander? <laughs> what, is, what is he? Um, and in my interactions with people, especially white people, I've had to read what they're reading of me. And in the past, when I was younger, I think I would Uh, adapt and sort of act to their expectations. Mm -hmm. Because I think, you know, sort of a a survival mechanism. Absolutely. And for my uh, ECE experience, I have all this going on and being a man who works with young children and all the stereotypes that that carries. Uh, i never (laughs) heard about that. (laughs) (laughs) And, you know, all in all, though, at times I feel like I'm always having to prove something or disprove something.
0: Mm. And hearing... You know, thinking about this question and hearing the answers just brings up so much, so much emotions in me because I'm right there with you. Trying to figure out a space where I can keep it real and then trying to figure out how to operate in this field is emotionally draining. And that's usually before 9 a.m. even hits. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And then I have to start my day. And that has such a a profound effect on how I show up, the amount of crap I I can or I'm willing to put up during the day. I have to constantly find myself in these odd spaces where I have to decide, all right, Mike, am I going to debate this topic, and go to town on it and be defined as this angry black male or the super sensitive one in the group? Or I'm going to have to hold back and pick and wait another date and pick another battle, you know? Mm-hmm. So being in the space where you're always under a microscope daily doesn't just affect your job. For me, it affects your mental, it affects your psyche. And the toughest thing I have done is try to explain that to cowork, which is why I'm so appreciative of just hearing that from you. Like I know we know that about each other, but hearing our similar struggles is why this napcast was born. It's why we have a bond. It's why I call you my brother. And if it wasn't for COVID nineteen right now, I'd give you a hug in solidarity. But you know what I mean? Let's keep six feet apart. And <laughs> then, uh, I'm gonna just give you a nod. Appreciate it, Mike. <laughs> so unlike a ton of spaces we operate in, and this one, this one right here is special. I can literally and metaphorically let my hair down, and it's such a liberating feeling to just be vulnerable. So I'm gonna ask you to lean into that right here with this next question, despite the fact that you know many of our friends, families, colleagues, partners are listening to this right now. So day in and day out which part of you do you leave at the door in order to survive? Mm -hmm. I mean, that's deep. So I'm going to give you a minute to think about it. Um, Since I created the questions, I already (laughs) already had a a second to to think about this. I'm going to go first. You know, I personally have to leave so much of myself at the door. We work tirelessly as educators, admins, and various stakeholders to create a space where preschoolers can develop a sense of self. And so we can address the needs of our diverse learners and families. I mean, it's going number one as described in our anti bias education. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that same energy is not spent on the environments we adults live in, we adults of color. We might lose that Zoom sponsorship we talked about in the last episode. <laughs> but to keep it real, our our industry is anti-Black. Mm-hmm. The disconnect is crazy when it comes to how we try to ensure our children of color, our black kids, are, are thriving and flourishing in schools. i be a, we ain't great at that either. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yet we still perpetuate. And although it's not my personal lived experience, but I know it is of some physical violence against blacks. Blacks are still on the receiving end of a linguistic oppression within within early child education. You know, symbolic harm, and of course. Mm-hmm systemic and cultural racism. So I'm so aware of how my, any deviation of grammar and pronunciation will land. And although English has many different forms, I have to leave that at the door. I have to leave part of my Afro-Caribbean lingo at the door. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm so in tune with the problematic construction of the role of black males. I have to water down my personality to not sound angry, argumentative, loud, emotional. So Nick, throwing it back to you, which part of you do you leave at the door in order to survive? yeah um you know there's definitely
1: there's definitely a lot of ideas that are sort of racing through my brain even currently at this moment Mm. and as you were talking um and i appreciate you you know really breaking that down for me of how of how you're perceiving it but the last bit really resonates with me and specifically you know um sort of watering down our personality to mm. not sound angry or argumentative or loud or emotional. Um, and specifically the idea of pride comes to mind. And I know that that is something a lot of my white friends and um, and, and and it is sort of a maybe a stereotype, good or bad, that a lot of um, people of, uh, of Latino, Latinx, Latina heritage have. Or is stereotypically, this sense of pride, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And I think this concept of pride is a double-edged sword. And mostly, right now, I'm I'm going to speak to the positive side of that sword. Um, I too have tended to become emotional and argumentative, and maybe sounded angry and loud. All of that when I have felt proud about my own work and my own ideas, yeah. and how they are, especially in the early childhood field, um, because I'm an anomaly in the early childhood field and so there's a sense of pride in that and i've had to find ways to water that down and i think that is especially true and can happen to you when you're the only man and a man of color in a room or at a table of all white women mm-hmm. i mean you might have probably felt that way just a bit just a know, bit. every now and then <laughs> um you can totally feel outnumbered and and frankly ganged up on whether it's intentional or not, you know, and, and I know, and I got to give my colleagues um, and the people I work with the benefit of the doubt. I know that there's good intention, but there's still this feeling. Um, another thing that comes to mind and you briefly mentioned it last napcast, and it's something I'm still kind of flesh out in my own thinking is this idea of quote unquote work-life balance. And I think like a lot of people of color, especially our, our, our brothers and sisters, and uh, that are uh, new to this country, and particular males in particular, um, it, we were all told to work hard and to put in e- more effort than the next person. You know, this is how we could be successful. We have to do this. We have to do more. You know, hard work pays off. That whole kind of thing. Um, and and I have a sense of pride that this has carried me just fine. So it's a little insulting. When someone is more or less breathing down my neck to, again, quote, unquote, mm-hmm. find work ba- find work life balance or questioning the effort that I'm putting in after work hours. Mm-hmm. This is how I was raised. And so when you're telling me to leave that at the door, it, you're, you're telling me to leave a sense of my operating, my sense of being, and, you know, at the door. And historically, people of color have had to work harder. And now I have to consider leaving that at the door. You know, and I mean, I can go on and on about, about
0: that, Mike. All right. So you're a man of values, of beliefs and truths. Mm-hmm. And you live a life that's a genuine reflection of them. So when there's kids crying, your coworker and you disagree, you've had a spat with your fam, your family, and the day just seems like it's dragging on. How do you reconnect with your authentic self? Can you give us like a glimpse of how you check back in with yourself to make sure you're still there?
1: Yeah. Um, in the moment, this can really this can be hard, you know, because you're being flooded with with emotions, and 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 the task to self regulate. But it's definitely worth the practice. Uh, I guess what I'm going to try to break down. Um, as soon as I'm feeling discomfort or unwanted feelings, all that heavy stuff, there's usually a manifestation that a physical manifestation that goes with it. And if I can name it, I name it out loud. And if not, I'll just write it down. Mm -hmm. And the idea behind this is to really give vivid language to put it on blast, put it in the spotlight. So I might write down, or I might say to myself, my stomach is feeling warm. There's a buzz to it. And it does not feel good. Or I'll notice my palms are feeling sweaty and my chest is starting to sweat. I'm feeling like I immediately sat into a hot tub. Then I'll try to just name that emotion or write it down. I'm feeling frustrated, embarrassed, whatever, whatever it is. And then I'll call out to myself what my part might be in that situation and how am I contributing to feeling a particular way? And when I identify those, I call them saboteurs, which I picked up that term um, from a book called Positive Intelligence. And I'll tell myself, oh, hey, there's that saboteur, the stickler, who came into this conversation. Yeah, you're making me feel this way. I see you there. I don't think there's space for you right now. Maybe another time, but now is not your turn. Or my biggest saboteur in the past, and minimally now, was self-righteousness and I would go through the same process of exposing self-righteousness or whatever it is and exposing them as frauds that they are because they take away from your joy of being in a moment. And that's the idea is to really put a spotlight on these saboteurs when they enter the sa- the stage, so to speak. Um, because they thrive in darkness. They don't mm. want to be exposed. And when you call them out, they
0: just shrink away. Mm. Something that struck me just now while listening to you is is your intentionality. Like you're, you're checking in with your emotions, but it's not just that you're also checking in with your mental and your physicals and, and the spiritual portion of you. And what did Marshawn Lynch say? You know, take care of your mentals, take care of your chickens. Yeah.
1: <laughs> you know, yeah. I really love his way with words. And, you know, I think just for people who, who may not know or may not be Seahawks fans mm-hmm. is, um, or from Seattle is what I love about what he says is that you know what he always brings to the table. It's always succinct and very thought provoking. Just like that, take care of y'all chickens. What is that? <laughs> I mean, if you think about it, it's it's having everything in order to move
0: forward. That's what I hear from it. Mm. Well, speaking of moving forward, uh, I think that it's dope that you have this willingness, this ability to connect your passion, your purpose, and your true self to the children's learning. Help them see beyond their own classrooms, connecting in with the bigger picture. But bruh, death metal? <laughs> like how? Why? Like you're pretty in, into the death metal music scene, so I guess just like help me, help me wrap my mind around the connection between death metal, toddlers, and yourself, and and why you decided to bring that part of your identity into the classroom
1: yeah i and i can i'm only just picturing like people listening to this and their eyebrows raising like did, did mike just say death metal <laughs> and toddlers in the same sentence yeah. you know it's funny earlier this year um i had a dad notice one of my death metal shirts and you know asked what the obscure writing had said and usually metal bands have some weird scrawled out way of presenting their name and they're generally unreadable and Uh, and you know, it becomes more of a logo and I told him who it was. I was like, Hey, this is cult leader. This is, this is one of my favorite, like death metal games. (laughs) And I only, and I only know this because I had bought the shirt at one of their shows. Mm -hmm. I always go see them when they come to town and the father then inquired, like, you know, yeah, he asked me what kind of metal it was. And I told him that they incorporate different kinds of metals of heavy metal music, uh, different genres of heavy metal, but they're mostly death metal. And I brief, you know, briefly took him down the road of different kinds of heavy metal and, and eventually said, well, yeah, death metal was my favorite for whatever reason. And he just kind of laughed and just said, I'm so glad and love that you're a toddler teacher. And then he went to work. <laughs> um, and, and also I do, I would like to say that I do uh, throw in a lot of hip hop. It's either death metal or hip hop people that mm, I'm like putting mm. on for the kids. Um but both me- metal music and toddlerhood, and I've done a lot of reflecting on this, are like really similar in nature. Hmm. They're raw, they're real, they're honest. There's a unabashed way of being, and there consists a harmonious sense of structured chaos. Oh, and they're and they're both best at their best when they're loud. So it sounds like my work desk. Okay, yeah, gotcha. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah. And it's. It's the kind of music that I love to listen to, that I play, watch live. Anyone who knows me, and as you said, you know it's an integral part of my my being. It's helped me through a lot of stuff. Mm. Um, and children, you know, are are going to have all their life to be drenched in the monotony of mainstream top forty music. So
0: why not Taylor Swift? <laughs> <laughs> why
1: not get them headbanging for a small portion of their life? And these are new experiences, right? Yeah. And, you know, it's another small avenue to sort of challenge and disrupt the norm, which is, you know, something I know that you're, you take pride in doing at Hilltop and and something I take pride in doing as well. And any small way we can do that, I think, gives children a well-rounded experience. And I know in ECE, we often say, you know, child-centered, but really we're all in the classroom community together. We're all classroom citizens And as I encourage and expect children and their families to bring aspects of themselves and their lives into the school as a form of authentic representation, I should do this too, all educators should. And I think that this reflects that relationships are reciprocal and we learn in that reciprocity.
0: We'll be right back. Hilltop Children's Center is a high-quality preschool, after-school program, and professional development institute of early learning and inquiry serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together, we are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching, and consulting, and of course, this napcast, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. All right. So Nick, we are a Reggio-inspired program and we view learning as an active process. But what does that mean? And how are you able to explore reflective, authentic inquiry as a teacher-researcher alongside the children? Uh yeah, Mike,
1: you, you are sounding more and more hilltopian uh, every day. Oh man, I don't <laughs> drink the Kool-Aid. Yeah, it's, it's a good thing. Uh. <laughs> you know, I think that, you know, it's obviously a, a reflection that we're all on the same page and we have shared values, and I think that's great. Um, but to your question, the word play. All you grown-ups out there, get back to play. Mm especially you, uh, educators, you know, I feel like this is the best kind of research and uh, way of going about research and exploration with anything is to immerse yourself in it, play. You know, we don't expect musicians to just read music and then all of a sudden be, be able to play the instrument. They have to do it. <laughs> um, and I think a lot of adults have forgotten how to play, but I've recently been falling back on just playing just to gain those insights from children. And a lot of that times that means getting right down on the floor and doing what the children do roll around on the ground. Like, you know, of course, don't worry about like what you're wearing, you know, wear a, a wardrobe that's conducive for that. You know, children certainly don't worry about what they're wearing. Um, and if they do, that's cause they're picking it up from a grownup, you know, authentic, uh, inquiry to me, requires authentic participation and that might
0: yield authentic insights or results the first thing i thought of when you said play i was like oh remember that show doug playing on a banjo or uh-huh. a trash can yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <That's-> <laughs> uh, nickelodeon if you're out there no nah. <laughs> uh speaking of insights i mean we can do a whole segment on this this next question. so let's let's just give folks a little taste with your answer. Mm. but um, I wanted your quick thoughts or insights on how do you set up your family, school community collaboration partnerships, um, family engagement. So you cultivate this atmosphere of shared responsibilities for primary decision making and, and accountability for outcomes for your kiddos and their families and seeing that almost almost right <laughs> almost makes me wish i was about 25 years younger um just to be in the classroom again and to be a part of that um hopefully potty trained by that time <laughs> um but how are you able to achieve this year in and year out with 15 new families each time yeah
1: i, I think i know what you're talking about can you uh, elaborate elaborate a little bit more mike
0: yeah yeah of course um I guess I'm looking and I'm wondering about how you co-create this small classroom community that seems to bring out your values, your family's identities, and each year you're able to have this culture that's inviting, that's warm, authentic, and grounded in action and accountability in all parts. So it's not just the parents pointing the finger at you and saying, yo, why doesn't my child know how to spell their name or the child looking at the parents and saying, yo, man, body train me. Like what's going on? Yeah.
1: Yeah. Okay. I hear you on that, my brother. Um, and honestly it's, it's leading with values and always falling back on that and also pair that with what we know about child development. Uh, And with those heavy, mostly unwanted feelings, and when I'm feeling stuck, when those times arise, I try to slow down and see if what's happening actually aligns with my values. And that guides me. And not just my values, but the values my team and I have collectively conjured up. Uh, At the beginning of each year, we make these values known with the families that are entering our class. And we have those whole family gatherings and we just lay it out there and we share our lens of how we want our time to be together uh, with the families and the, and their children. And the last couple of years, we've been inspired by the New Zealand Ministry of Education's curriculum, Te Whariki. If you don't know Te Whariki, go check it out. It's spelled T-E-W-H-A-R-I-K-I. Um, and it's based on this idea of mana, or mana could be uh, thought of as empowerment. And it asserts that children are already coming into the classroom and world really competent with their own understandings of the world and how it works. And so it's up to us educators, curators of this classroom environment to reflect that in our practices, to support the children of where they're at. And as you've seen, Mike, uh, walking into our class, you could see um, right when you walk in the door, you see these a word and some questions that follow it. And there's five of them. And we have sort of used the Te to to shape our values around these. And the first one is well-being. Can I trust you? Second one is contribution. Is this place fair for us? The third one being belonging. Do you know me? Fourth one, communication. Do you hear me? And the last one, exploration. Do you let me fly? Mm.
0: That hits home. And it kind of just reminds me of this book I recently read by Del Carnage titled How to Stop Worrying and Start Living. And it's essentially a collection of stories and advice to calm nerves and to be in the moment and present in the moment. And one of the stories was about and I'm paraphrasing. It's basically about how one woman in the 1900s was Ill, ill-stricken with grief because she never fit in and always tried to emulate others. And it wasn't until her mother-in-law told her that the one thing she told her kids growing up was to just be themselves. And from that day on, she changed her outlook in life and went on to be successful. Such a simple advice. Mm-hmm. Yet yeah, we grow old and we make life so complicated. You see it on the daily. You see kids imitating each other. They, they sometimes want to be like others. So how do you get children to be their authentic self? What messages are you sending them to reinforce this? What, which questions do you pose? How are you supporting families to do the same at home? Yeah, that's a huge question, Mike. And, you know, I can only
1: speak to my experience um, as a toddler teacher and share from that perspective. And I think it's important to understand that young children are looking to us at every moment. And they're looking to each other as well for information on how to be in some situations. Um, I also firmly believe that they're constructing their understandings of particular individuals they meet based on, adult responses, uh, this person is that way or that person is that way and this is how they are and whatever the situation is, Uh, children also pick up on how adults treat other children Mm. in their presence, like, uh, and can adjust their behaviors accordingly. And so it's not surprising to expect another young child to sort of latch on the idea of, oh, this is how someone is, or this is how they should be treated. And I often think about some of my time student teaching and hearing one child say about another child, oh, the teacher, yeah, Mrs. So-and-so is always having them sit down and is always telling them to be quiet or, oh, they're just crazy because they're always getting up and they can't keep them hands to themselves. (laughs) And and obviously I'm saying they a lot to try to say gender neutral, but let's be honest, this is generally about, about boys. Absolutely. Um, and that realization and a great and somewhat unfortunate example of this is young boys are going to have the majority of their teachers be female. I don't know if you know this, but six out of a hundred children in the U S will have a male preschool teacher if they're fortunate. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, 95.5% of caregivers are women in the United States. And I think it's it's super fortunate that in our, in our center, we have about four to five just male presence, male educators, male admin mm-hmm. um, in our center, which is yeah sometimes unheard of. Yeah, and like I was telling you earlier
1: um, before recording this, that uh, I have a colleague through the World Forum Foundation at his center. They have 14. Jeez. The life. Yeah, of course, <laughs> it's, it's in Canada. So um. <laughs> So they got that going for them. Um, and, you know, we already know that boys tend to get treated significantly different. They're more likely to be expelled or receive a heavier punishment of sorts than their gender counterparts. They're more likely to be diagnosed with something. And they're labeled with just un- with unjust titles. And we're just talking about boys in general. We're not even talking about boys of color. Mm. Um, and I think acknowledging, I think overall to your question, just acknowledging that children are in process, as we all are, and they're at the beginning of it. We have to give them the benefit of the doubt and really deepen their capacity to be to as thinkers and not just give them, um, just fill them up as empty vessels. And so I suppose it's about addressing the human needs and trying hard to avoid societal constructs. And that's, I think, a one way we can deepen their capacity as thinkers. And for me, that's avoiding to telling boys not to cry, really mm-hmm. encouraging them to cry and be like, yeah, you're sad. I feel you. Give me, give me a hug. Mm-hmm. Like, let's hug it out. Hugs are important. Let me hold you. Uh, and then also not just calling girls sweet names, but also boys too. And also expecting that girls want to wrestle and they want to play fight too um it's again it's about counteracting certain constructs that pigeonhole the human experience which i think allows a person's authentic self sense of self to flourish
0: man what a what a conversation what a conversation i appreciate the time and and the thought you put into each and every single answer um and i hope that hope that we be out underneath what 30 minutes hopefully yeah <laughs> we'll see well hey i appreciate you buddy and thank you nick hey thanks mike appreciate you as well